I went from knowing absolutely nothing about the stack to accidentally becoming an Elasticsearch expert. I think it made me really understand how important observability systems are. Everything that tells you something about your system, if you're relying on someone else to provide that for you, that has to be priority number one. I help with product, I help with marketing, just kind of do a little bit of everything, but I really get to take the expertise that I've been able to obtain over the last several decades and share it with people, you know, like education and helping making other people's lives better. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or Ollicast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups bring our developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So I've been doing this a long time, and so unfortunately I have too many disaster stories. I've been involved with too many incidents, some of them short and some of them lasted months, and you can really consider it all the same incident. You know, at one point in time, I bought a sleeper couch just because I was getting woken up every single morning at about 3 a.m. and I didn't want to keep waking my partner up. So I bought a new couch to sleep on just because I knew I was going to be woken up and didn't want everyone else to have to deal with that. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've had a few experiences, but perhaps the most formative was dealing with a very broken elk stack, you know, an Elasticsearch log stash Kibana logging system. And, um, it was something that took months and months to actually resolve. And even after we kind of figured out what steps we need to take to make things better, even that took more than a month uh, for things to actually kind of start to resolve themselves even. And it was a process where I went from knowing absolutely nothing about this stack to accidentally becoming an Elasticsearch expert. It was a long but a very interesting experience. So so like if your logging is down, how who logs the logger? <laughs> how did you troubleshoot that? That that was exactly part of the problem, right, is is that everybody else at the company relied on us. And that actually made us, by every quantifiable measure, the busiest system at the company. Because mm-hmm. if any other system, any other service was doing something, they had to let us know. And we had to process all that and index it. And, you know, these were all, I was slightly lucky in the sense that these were all physical machines. So I had access to them in a way that I was used to for my entire career. They were Linux boxes. I will log on and worst case scenario, go tail dash F slash var slash log slash <laughs> whatever service I needed to look at. Um, so while we didn't get to use our own logging system to investigate things, at least I still had access to uh, data that way. And, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, I've been doing this a while, so I'm pretty comfortable with command line tools and how to parse data out of logs that way and things like that. But yeah, it was it was not fun for everyone else at the company because when we were down, they couldn't troubleshoot their problems. Right. How did this change the way you saw systems, the way you did your job in general? I think it very quickly made me really understand how important observability systems are. Uh, everything, your telemetry, right? Everything that tells you something about your system, if you're relying on someone else to provide that for you, yeah, that has to be priority number one. And, you know, you'd think maybe I'd know this because I was on the production monitoring team at Google, right? We kept all of Google's <laughs> monitoring and all of Google's alerting alive. Uh, but the truth is those systems weren't that brittle. 
Yeah. Um, they worked fairly well. And even when they didn't, we knew the remediation paths and things like this. The problems I faced with this, you know, elastic stack, no one knew what was broken. Right. No one knew what we had to do. You to were the it. expert. <laughs> well, I had to become it. Question, what year was this? This would have been 2018 into 2019. So Elk wasn't like super new, but it wasn't old time. No, but it was new to me because that was the first job after Google. So I'd spent eight years in the cathedral uh-huh. and I was just coming back to uh, uh, what the outside world looks like. And so suddenly I'm on this team and, uh, you know, I'm the most senior engineer and they're dealing with this, you know, fire uh, of a, you yeah. know, like of a logging system. Yeah. And I was like, well, at least I can Google this stuff, right? At least other people use these products. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this was like a forest fire that was like a slow spreading burn that went on for months. Yeah. This sounds like a good time for you to introduce yourself. Hey everyone, my name is Alex Adalgo. Um, I've been a site reliability engineer for over a decade and I wrote the SLO book. Yes, the SLO book. What is SLO? Service level objectives. My favorite topic. Yay! <laughs> Before we get to that, just one second. I want to. I want to. My the, the most formative outage of, of of my career. I think what sounds very similar to yours. Um, this was at Linden Lab when we tried to upgrade our Mar- our MySQL cluster from four point one to five point zero, and all of the metrics said it would be faster. So we did it. And P.S. You could you could not replicate from five zero to four one. You could only replicate from four one to five zero. So we were doing the upgrade without a safety net, right? So we upgraded, and it wasn't faster for our query families and our workload. It took us a day to realize this. We finally rolled back. We lost twenty four hours worth of data from our pre- from the primary MySQL everything, and I spent the rest of the next year trying to you know fix this we're like okay back to square one right and I, and I ended up writing this capture replay system for it would capture 24 hours worth of traffic for the mysql primary and then replay it against you know over and over and over while we you know this is this is when i got to use the the percona patches that mark callahan had built at google to like distribute the workload over multiple cpus like it was it was a it was a heavy heavy lift i learned so much from that one you know, it got it came around to Thanksgiving the next year, and and we were ready to make the switch, right? But everyone was so petrified, so terrified that they just wouldn't do it. They sat there for another two months until like after January, and then they finally did the upgrade and the flip and the flip over, and it was like silence, just like crickets. It was so smooth and so perfect. But like that was my introduction to like problems that you can't just fix by fighting the fires harder. <laughs> Right, where you actually have to take it offline and like, yeah, do some science. Yeah, totally. And uh, you know, I, I I like what you mentioned there about how people then got afraid. Yeah. Right, and 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 that's and that's real because you know, in some senses, we work pretty cushy jobs. We get paid really well. We have a lot of freedoms, and you know, but uh, uh, it can be traumatizing. Absolutely, really can. There was a time period at Google where just about every SRE had the same Android device and just about all of us used the same tone for our pages. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, God. And years later, after people had kind of moved on from that era, we launched a big project and the dev team, like the sister dev team to to our SRE team, 
had one of those like birthday cards, like those cards like that you opened that then plays a noise. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. They recorded that pager sound. Oh no. It was <laughs> legit flashback territory. Oh my God. Right. Cause that was that sound that woke me up every day at 3 a.m. for months and months of my life. <sighs> and God. you know, so you know, again, I don't I don't want to ignore the general privilege we see as tech employees, you know, like a lot of the time, just but uh it, it, that trauma can be real. It can it can stay with you. I don't know what I do if I heard that sound right now. There are pager sounds that I still like that just still give me a jolt when I'm like, oh god. So yeah, I completely understand that. And on the dev side, what's scariest about those incidents is the organizational scarring? Is that fear that suddenly we can't change anything and your software ossifies and now yeah. uh, it's so hard to get anything out that you get it out in big bunches and then it's garbage to figure out what went wrong and yeah. It's a software engineering death spiral <laughs> is what I, yeah. I've come to think of it as. That's, that's you know, like interesting kind of segue to, you know, like that's how I see people do SLOs so wrong. Right, yeah, like, they'll, really? like they'll try to follow the original formulated uh, 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 pattern outlined in the first Google S rebook, which is simply out of error budget, don't ship features. Have error budget, ship features. Yeah, right. But I've seen this firsthand on so many teams. I've ca- that like these calendar aligned windows, right? Yeah. So like they'll blow through their error budget, and then the S re team says no shipping features. In the meantime, the devs are still writing a bunch. Uh, so then the calendar flips over, uh, and so no, you have all don't. your error budget back. So every feature. Everything gets pushed at once, right? Like 500 no. uh, PRs all hit prod at the same time, and no. you instantly blow through your error budget again and rinse and repeat. And I've, I've seen this too many times. So this is a total binge. Paycheck arrives, buy everything, have no money for the rest of the month. Yeah. Exactly. So how did this inform, I guess, I'm guessing this informed your desire to work on this book, which... As someone who just recently finished their second O'Reilly book after three and a half years, <laughs> high five. You, you were you. so organized about the way you did your book. I just remember you had a Slack room, you Slack, Slack chats, you, you had deadlines, you had this spreadsheet, and we kind of like lurched around it. We were not nearly <laughs> as organized or sophisticated about it. But on the flip side, it, during that three and a half years, like the, the target of observability moved and changed so much. Tons. Yeah, I mean... Same in my world. Like if I were to be writing the SLO book today, there's so many things I would say differently. There's so many things I would add, so many things I'd remove. You know, I'm I'm still proud of it and I still think it's a useful work, of course, right? Like what? Like what would I change? Yeah. A lot more emphasis on basically exactly what I was just talking about, which is like how to use your error budgets better, right? What can you do with this data? Yeah. There's there's plenty in the book about it, right? But like that should have been several entire chapters as opposed to like sections of chapters. Because I think mm. the resulting data that you get out of the SLO-based approach, that data that you get that you can hopefully use to have better conversations and make better decisions and all that. Yeah, I think I could have put even more emphasis on the fact that it's not good to like set strict rules around it, uh, or you end up with a situation like the one I was just describing, where you right. all you do is you stop shipping features and then you blow your budget again next month, right? You want data informed decisions, not data driven. Yeah, right. And 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 I do talk about that in the book, but that's the first thing. If you're asking me like, what would I do differently? I would frame it even stronger that, you know, make sure you're using this data correctly and you're not just setting a few policies and walking away from it. Yeah, yeah. Do do you have data or does the data have you? (laughs) (laughs) I need a sticker that says that. (laughs) 
new charity sticker dropping. <laughs> exactly. Well, so you changed jobs after this too, right? Talk, talk to us about your new job. Yeah. So yeah, I was a SRE forever. And then I joined Noble Nine, where I'm at now, and became director of SRE for a while. And that was actually my first people management role in tech. Wow, you jumped straight to director, huh? Yeah, um, it was just what was needed from me at the time. Yeah. And uh, I actually really enjoyed it. But uh, I stepped down from that back in January after just about a year exactly. Um, I think I was good at the people part of the people managing. But to be honest, I don't think yeah. I was the best at like keeping people on track. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, those are tough skills. Yeah, yeah. Like I never... I can never totally internalize that, but uh, I'm really happy with what I'm doing now. I'm uh, uh, the principal reliability advocate, nice. and um, I'm really kind of back to what I think I was originally hired to do at Noble Nine, which is just kind of like be the SLO dude. Yeah, yeah. Right? I help with product, I help with marketing, I help with both prospects and signed customers, and just kind of do a little bit of everything. But I really get to take the expertise that that I've been able to obtain over, you know, the last several decades and kind of share it with people. And, uh, you know, like, that's my favorite, you know, like education and, and, and helping making other people's lives better. You get to move the world forward, both internally and externally. Mm-hmm. That feels like what we've learned at Honeycomb too, with Jess and, and Liz, you know, they're, they've gotten to the point in their careers where they're kind of Odd ducks, where who wants to do a little bit of everything all over the company, and and putting them in the advocate role means that they have their ear to the ground. They can kind of like go wherever they're needed or wherever they feel drawn towards. So I think it's a really, it's an interesting career path that I don't hear people talking about. You know, you always hear about the engineer to manager um, pendulum, but like when it comes to being a senior IC, there are other ways to be senior IC that don't involve going deep into like the principal engineer route and they involve more coming up, you know, and I think that advocacy is a super interesting place for those people. Yeah. It's totally ironic that they call IC individual contributor. I know. Where right? The higher you go, the less individual it is. Yeah. Totally true. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, even at my time at Squarespace, I was getting to the point where I realized like I wasn't the dude writing design docs anymore. Like not like I wrote them, but my design docs existed so that, six other people could write six other design docs, right? It was more, yeah. you know, high level roadmap stuff and, you know, but yeah, like I like, I like operating at this level. Uh, like I think it suits me and it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. I think that's kind of the definition of a seniority in development and technology generally. It's how widely do you think, how widely do you influence? Is it this function that you're writing is it this service that you care for or are you looking at the wider system throughout the whole company and then eventually with product and stuff farther than your company? This is also why I feel like it's really hard for senior ICs to come in to a company at a very high level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so much easier for them to work their way up and be, if, you know, once you've been there for a couple of years, then, okay, you've got the lay of the land and, you know, everyone knows you and you know everyone and you can operate at this level. Um, but like hiring someone in fresh from outside, like it's frustrating because once you've reached this level in your career at a company, you don't really want to go and start from the beginning somewhere else. You want to be acknowledged for the work that you've done. But also it's really, it's it be challenging, I think, to like come in at, you know, level six, seven, eight and, and just have that impact off, off the gate because, you know, you, it depends so much on context relationships. Yeah, totally. Like a huge part of what you do at Staff Plus, right? Like it's the term we throw around on tech Twitter now, you know, yeah. is is it's understanding the 
human elements of the systems, right? You know the history, you know who to go ask what question, right? You know all the different teams, you know the history of the teams, you you know why this team owns that service and, you know. And, and I don't want to like skip over this. It's grounded in your deep understanding of the tech, right? Because you've got project managers who, who know everybody and everything too, but they can't have the same influence because it's not grounded in the deep. I think it's really easy for people like us to like skip over that and go, oh, it's only the people stuff that matters. <laughs> no, it's that the engineering stuff is easy for you so you're able to leverage it into broad influence. Like it's both parts matter a lot. Yeah, totally. Because it's a socio-technical system. Exactly. This is why, you know, when young engineers, you know, come to me and they're thinking of skipping over to being, you know, whether it's a manager or, and by young, I mean, they've been in the business less than five years, right? So I don't think you can really be senior until you've been doing five to seven years. But, you know, they're often, and especially this happens to women because they often have, quote unquote, better communication skills, better people skills or whatever. So they get pulled, you know, into being developer advocates or being, you know, managers or whatever. And I always discourage them from doing that because, you know, technical credibility is, especially if somebody's going to come up to you and question your credibility, you want to have that credibility. And it's going to decay really quickly if, if you're not, if you're not already a master of your domain. And then, you know, it's not going to be as satisfying. You're not going to get as much, you know, pay. You're not, it's not going to be the same because it's not just the people stuff. It is having that technical depth and seniority and then also being good at the people stuff. Yeah, totally agreed on that. So you also, Alex, one of the reasons you're my favorite people. And it's so funny that like we got to know each other over a mini spat about your book where I was like, hey, I don't like this. And you're like, that's fine. It's not for you. And I'm like, fair enough. <laughs> but one of the reasons I love you so much is because you're you're like me like you're not a dropout like I am but you're you know a liberal arts major and you know you said you studied history and philosophy and tell us how that's really informed your tech career and, and why you think that's a good path to have gone I mean not just what I studied in college but the whole route of how I ended up in tech in the first place you know because I, I spent my 20s not just studying philosophy and history, but, you know, working at restaurants, both on the line in the kitchen, as well as front of house and bartending. And I worked at a furniture store for a while. Real work. Uh, I worked in a warehouse. Sometimes I got to drive the big truck and deliver furniture. And, you know, I've just, I've done a ton of stuff, but what I really, what all those experiences have informed how I approach everything in tech, right? Everything is a people problem in the service industry. Right? Yeah. Everything, because there's always customers involved and there's always your teammates that you have to rely on. And, you know, like you cannot work in a kitchen unless everyone's on the same page, you know. Yeah. And I just see so many parallels from that that I think otherwise, especially people who study you know, computer science and go straight into the industry, it can be difficult to learn those skills as easily in tech. I think people do eventually, uh, but it's not as clear. And it's definitely not the case that your comp sci education necessarily prepares you for that, I think. So, you know, uh, I've been informed by lots of different stuff, but it's it's one of the reasons I've come to love, you know, like SLOs, to go back to them again, right? It's difficult to talk to me without me bringing those up all the time. But, you know, I, I realized that it was stuff I was already doing in all my previous careers. You know, yeah. when I was a bartender, I would have this objective to greet every customer within like 30 seconds. Right? Uh, and I didn't like have a stopwatch right, like, necessarily, right. but I was keeping track as people walked in, okay, get that person. Now I've got to get that person. And right. Because I wanted them to have a good experience. I wanted to provide them with the proper level of service. And, you know, I knew if I was able to hit those targets often enough, I'd have a good night and I make a lot of tips and everyone would be happy. But if I missed those targets too often, I'd have a bad night and I wouldn't make as much in tips and people would walk out and maybe not come back. And, you know, that's all service level objective. 
objectives are. And I realized I'd done them. Every career I'd ever had, yeah. uh, we just didn't call them that. I have a sticker that says that SLOs are the API for engineering teams. Yeah, they're uh, a communication tool as much as anything else. They're a way yep. to interface with people, you know, as much as they are anything else, you know. Because if you haven't set these these agreements with with your neighboring teams, then you have to know everything about what's going on and like the nits and grit, nitty and gritty and whatever. And if you've made these agreements, then you don't have to be cognizant of what's going on underneath the hood. As long as they meet their agreements, it's up to them, right? And it's up to you as long as you meet your agreements. That's the only way to scale teams. So it's like setting good boundaries. Yeah, it's a very much like setting good boundaries in a relationship. Yeah. Just talk to us about you have you're the only one of us here to have an actual CS degree. Did that make you super powered? It's not a CS degree though, it was physics. Oh, of course. But I <laughs> I, I observe that people totally accept that. Oh yeah, of course, because it's a hard science, quote unquote. Right, right. Physics is supposed to be harder than comp sci. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the math is important. The um, the lab stuff, the scientific method of vary one thing and see the difference. Oh my gosh, so useful in debugging. Mm. Not everybody has that drilled into them. Right. Mm-hmm. Totally useful. Well, how did you get into computers, Jess? Oh, let's see. I was I was programming my calculator in high school for lack of anything better to do, <laughs> and then like. In college, I got really lucky, and my aunt knew somebody at FedEx who knew somebody in operations research who got me an internship. And I was like, this is great because I get to like do cool stuff and solve puzzles and go home at 5.30 and not think about it anymore. <laughs> if there's no homework. It's amazing. Of course, now it's nothing like that. You've had such an interesting career, Jess. Because I feel like you've had like a sec, almost a renaissance career after you. Because you were like in big companies doing, you know, backend stuff and Java programming for a long time. Enterprise Java dev, yeah. Enterprise Java dev. And then you discovered conferences is how it goes in my mind. Totally. And then it got really interesting. And suddenly software was like fascinating. Because yeah. when you meet other people who are fascinated by it, and this was at like the, the renaissance of functional programming and mobile and a bunch of other things. Right. Yeah, so so I got lucky. And then then you go to a conference and you like listen some to some talks and you get ideas for the next things you want to talk about and so on. Yeah. This is how extroverts go about things I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you were you were saying earlier that the humanities classes you took really stuck with you. How so? Yeah, it was engineering school. There were like three humanities classes. <laughs> semester of French, semester of it was supposed to be philosophy, but everybody in physics, of course, just took logic, right. which was child's play, but it's useful. And then there was one English class where we read like important things, like about the the death marches of prisoners of war in the Philippines in World War II. Wow. Um, the first Lovecraft I ever read was in that class. And now what do I read in my spare time is philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to like go back and catch up on who are these people that everyone is talking about. And it's fun how much that comes back to software. Alex, how have you found your your history and philosophy background? Well, so I majored in philosophy. I minored in history and I almost minored in English, but I had like one more senior seminar to take and just didn't care to finish it up, right? But I, I almost had two minors. And, and you know, I like to 
joke that I took the three most useless degrees and combined them into one. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, uh, those are probably the three degrees that require the most reading and writing. Yeah. Like that's all you do. You know, at one point in time, one of my last semesters, I remember I'd something like, you know, yeah. like 120 pages worth of papers all due within like a week or two, you know, and just. No wonder you can write a book. Well, that's you know, like the point. I learned how to synthesize data. I learned very well, I think, how to take complicated concepts, distill them into simple ones, explain them to people. All the reading and writing I did, I think, really helped prepare me for my tech career more than... Being a good writer is like such an underrated skill. Yeah, totally. It is. It has consistently helped me out in my career. Uh, everything from being able to compose a good email to uh, explaining things correctly on Slack, knowing what questions to ask. That's absolutely what I took away the most was the ability to communicate, the ability to absorb information, and then the ability to share that information out. Well, it helps encode too. I've always been a good writer. I was homeschooled, so I never really had school. But I did a fair amount of, I did a lot of reading and I did a fair amount of writing. What helped me in my career the most was getting good at public speaking because people, (laughs) I think I play an extrovert reasonably well on TV. So people don't always realize this, but like when I, when I was at Parse, you know, this is 10, 12 years ago now, I remember the first talk I ever had to give to the company, which was 12 people at the time, and I was supposed to give a talk about the infrastructure. I was so fucking scared. It took me two weeks to get up the nerve. Mm-hmm. I wrote the entire script verbatim, and, and I stressed about it. I had nightmares. I woke up in a cold sweat day after day for like two weeks. And then when I gave it, I was just, I was shaking. I, I couldn't function. I couldn't talk or think while people were looking at me. And I was so humiliated by that, that I just kind of leaned the fuck into it (laughs) and came like, I started speaking everyone would have me because now that I know ADHD and like adrenaline is a stimulant that I I really get off on, but you know, I could never have started a company. I could never have done, you know, the things that I do now if I hadn't like pushed through that fear and become, you know, not great at it, but good enough at it. Totally. I mean, you know, I, I too play an extrovert on TV. Uh, people always think I'm extroverted. In fact, I thought I was an extrovert up until a few years ago when my therapist was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, like, what do you mean? I'm good at talking to people and like, I'm extroverted, right? And she's like, Alex, how do you get your energy? I'm like going on long walks by myself, listening to podcasts. And she's like, what do you do after you have like a board game night with your friends? I have to go spend time alone. Like I I have to, right? Like that's how I actually recharge. It's, it's, It's being by myself. And it wasn't until, yeah, I was 37. You know, I spent my entire life assuming I was an extrovert. And then a professional kind of explained to me, I just wasn't, you know, and that helped me understand so much better how to engage with my public speaking. For example, I, I, I was able to better recharge and, and, and therefore better approach the scenario. And therefore it wasn't as scary anymore. How has the pandemic impacted you? Yeah. Yeah. How was it when you weren't getting that socialization? It's been, I think, in some sense, easier for me than some people because, again, I am so happy just being by myself or just spending time with my dog or my partner and going on very long walks. I mean, for a while, that was the only thing we could do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like we had nothing else to do. It was, it was sit at home or go for a walk. And 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 luckily, that's that's stuff that I truly, honestly enjoy. Uh, but on the same token, right, I get so much out of doing the public speaking stuff. Yeah. Like, I am, I am so sick of the virtual conference thing. Like, you know. And like, I'm helping organize one right now. I don't know when this yeah. episode goes up, but go register for SLOConf, SLOConf.com. It may not have happened yet. I don't know. But, you know, like I'm, 
personally, I, I just can't wait to get back to being on stage in front of a room. It's, it's, it's the performance that I miss. Yeah. So I was asking because for me, like I, I feel like I spent the past decade and a half of my life in, in like training, like, like a marathoner, like being around people, like just pushing myself constantly to push my social boundaries, like be around people more, like, you know, because it used to be like when I was working at Linden Lab, like I could go out for drinks with folks maybe one night a week and I'd be, that'd be it. Like I could last maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour or two. And then I'd be shut down for the week, you know, and that's not okay. Like I not okay with me, you know, so I was pushing. And now I feel like after two years of enforced isolation, I'm having a really hard time opening back up. I'm having a really hard time. You know, it'll take me a couple of hours to force myself out of the door to go visit friends. And then I have a great time. But also after, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, I am tanked and I start getting really irritable and I start, you know, it's just, it's really, I'm having to pay really close attention to my feelings and my, and my ability to be around people because it's not, it is lessened, but it's also very unpredictable for me. And that's just really weird right now. You know, and, and, and it's not like we have to be the same people we were before, right? Like there's not some kind of reset, like. You know, if I look at how different I am in any two-year period over the course of my entire life, I've become a very different person. And so it'd be silly to be like, just because we had the pandemic and hopefully it'll quote unquote end at some point that things are going to be, no, like they're never going to be the same. You know, we've all been changed by this, not just because it's been a collectively traumatizing experience and it's two years have passed. Of course, we're all different people, you know? I don't like to hear this one bit. (laughs) I'm sorry, Charity. (laughs) What makes you you isn't how you are at any one moment. It's that process of change. It's the delta. It's how you direct your attention and therefore the shift in your direction and your future self. It's how Charity leans in to what scares her that makes her Charity, not being shy or uh, being able to present neither of those things. It's, it's the Delta. Yeah. I guess it scares me because I'm starting to sign back up for Like I'm going to be in New York next week and I'm going to Japan next month and, and stuff. And it's like, I feel unsure in my ability to make commitments Yeah, because I'm unsure how much bandwidth I'm actually going to have. And, and it's, and you know, I've been to so many conferences in the past where I ended up spending half of it in the bathroom, just hiding from people. And then I feel really sheepish and dumb. Only half? That's pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I'm just like, then I feel like it's a waste of the company's money and everything. And I'm just like beating myself up over it. But you're right. You're, you're both right. Of course you're right. (laughs) I mean, I was someone like before the pandemic, I already didn't love crowds, right? Yeah. Like before the pandemic, I was already someone who would, I'd stand on the subway platform here in New York for 20 minutes waiting for the empty subway to show up, right? Like yeah. easily, like, you know, I don't know how I'm ever going to go back to like rush hour subways or going to a busy bar or a club. Like I just, oh, I, I think I'm probably done with that for life at this point. <laughs> Jess is like lusting in her eyes right now, just like busy clubs. During the pandemic, I had dreams about being on a crowded subway. Oh. <laughs> like good dreams, not like. <laughs> well, here's to getting all of our needs met, <laughs> whatever they may be. 
the last thing I kind of wanted to talk about was sort of related to what we were talking about, about, you know, the CS degrees and whatnot. But like, I feel like there are very few junior SREs in the world. I feel like there are not, like so many of us from the ops side came from very non-traditional backgrounds Mm -hmm. and the bar was so low for getting into the tech industry. You know, it's like, do you know the command line? Can you name a few flags to grep? All right, here you go, cowboy, like... (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they just toss you into the deep end. And now, you know, there's been this whole professionalization and, you know, turning people into engineers. And on the one hand, I I understand why and I support it. And on the other hand, it's like, how do we get people in who understand systems, not just software? You know, where are they going to come from? Do you need five or 10 years of some shit or other before you're ready to like, no, I'm, I'm, I didn't have five or ten years. Like I went straight from being a dropout music major to like adminning the CS, you know, department's servers and the math stat department. Like I went straight into being an ops person, but I didn't have a CS degree. And now, you, you know, if you want an entry level position, you better have a degree of some sort or mm. come from like a couple years at Hack Academy or something. And even then, it is so hard to get your first job in engineering. Yeah, it's totally a problem because everybody needs the experience, but nobody's willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 tough. I don't I don't know if I have good answers there, you know. But one thing I will say is a, a huge number of people who I look up to came the IT route, right? Yeah. Like that's how I got here. Like I was desktop support. Yeah. You know, at some point I was, I was, my first job when I moved to New York was, was traveling around to various clients' offices running virus scans and stuff, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I, computers are also a hobby and I'd been coding since I was nine and, you know, messing around with things and, you know, all that. So I had this other background as well, right? But, you know, that's, I think, a great pipeline, you know, like let's look to IT, let's look to desktop support. I think those are the kind of people we can level up. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, because they already have troubleshooting skills. Oh, Totally. And dealing with customer stuff. But like, I don't encounter those people. Like I haven't, the only one I worked at Facebook that I encounter any of these people. Well, like help desk support, you mean? But we have customer support people. We have a couple of customer support people. Yeah. And we, so we've explicitly been thinking about this as a route into tech, you know, because yeah. we, we have tried, you know, hiring a couple junior engineers and it's tough. Like I talk snark about how nobody wants to invest in it, but everyone wants to reap the skills of it. But also we haven't unlocked this, the secret to doing this, you know, like our success in bringing juniors on has been very, very spotty because especially with the, the remote teams now, like mm-hmm. how do you bring on, you know, newbies with remote teams? I think it's really hard because so much of them, you know, there's, there's a lot of anxiety and nervousness and they need somebody to like them on the shoulder and like look over their shoulder and really just really see are they are they do they seem like they've stalled or do they need my help you know yeah and and part of it's just like being as early as we are and as you know strapped as we are like every single person we have has a full-time job you know and and we can't spare a third of someone's time to like coach someone even though in the end that's what it takes right you want to be the kind of organization that says we can mentor and we can and we can bring on newer people to the industry and help them learn and encourage and coach and but the reality is how many of us actually have the cycles to do that and if you're not being honest with yourself then you are both letting yourself down and you're letting that person down something that we found though is that it isn't really the most senior people who are best at this it's often the intermediate people Mm-hmm. Because they remember, yeah, the experts are not the best teachers. <laughs> Correct. It's people who are junior engineers in the last three to five years. They can help juniors get into tech. Right. 
because you remember what it was like to learn the things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And also it was so different when I started. Oh God, like a a little while back, I was talking to someone and they were like, so when we move to IPv6, are are all of our ports going to (laughs) change? Oh, it's IP that's changing, not TCP. They're like, what? Because they didn't even understand that TCP and IP are entirely separate protocols and blah, blah, blah. But like you had to know that if you were a certain age, because you had to, Deal with networks. But yeah. there are so many people in the industry now, uh, even people who've been in the industry for five or 10 years who've only ever ran on the cloud, have never had to think of networking outside of what IP does my cube pod have, if they even have to think about that, because they have some kind of service mesh that actually handles all that. You know, like it's, it's, it's little examples of things, but there's stuff like that, that, that some people just don't learn anymore because they don't have to. And yet they have to learn so many more things because they have to know the service mesh and the cloud. And there's like 16 layers on top of that. So yeah, you know, fewer of the lower ones, but we just didn't have so many things to learn. Uh, We had different things to learn. Right. Different. But you know, like, to this day, I could probably teach you a lot more about networking than I can about any service mesh software I've used, you know? For sure. <laughs> yeah, because because well, it was like with that Elasticsearch that you got super expert in. You had that that expertise earned in the fire. Right. Yeah. And and like when you when you know the fundamentals, it's so much easier to figure out things that are above it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you didn't know the low level networking and file system and everything, like becoming an expert in Elasticsearch would have been way harder, if not impossible. Yes. Especially again, because these were a bunch of physical machines in a data center with actual hardware techs that worked for my company. You know, like it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, even though it was only a few years ago, it was a much more kind of quote unquote old school experience, you know, but like I'd done that, you know, Uh, I used to always, (laughs) uh, you know, at some hypothetical pure level, if you want to learn computers, I feel like you got to learn how to count in binary first and then learn yeah. what a logic gate is. And then yeah. learn like, but no, I'm so dumb. That's that's not what you actually have to know anymore. I think that may have been true, like a good starting point 20 years ago. And part of me still thinks people should know how to count in binary, but like, you don't have to know that stuff anymore. You really don't. Well, it doesn't hurt, but, but you could like do a couple puzzles in binary. I mean, spend a class period on it. That's enough. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You need to be able to like recognize powers of two. <laughs> yeah, because you'll there be we go. you'll be screwed if you can't <laughs> if you can't do that. Yeah, it actually probably be a useful conference talk. Yeah, of like just what is binary for the people who never had to learn it. I uh, I developed a networking course for Coursera uh, a few years ago, and the two largest sections are on subnetting and DNS. Oh, and people are like, do you really have to spend this much time on subnet math? I'm like, yes, because this is what yeah, I've seen yeah. cause people the most problems and break systems the most often. And, yeah. and you know, like DNS being right up there as well. I was like, no, we're covering this yep. because <laughs> this is what people really need to know. <laughs> I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah, we can wish it was implemented in a way that was easier to understand. But the world is what it is. <laughs> and this is now the physics of the internet. The world is what it is. And we all still use SMTP, and we always will until we die. Oh. And on that note, it's been great having you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. You know, like, it's a lot of fun. All right. Cheers. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did, too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. 
It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.